Welcome to the AI Hustle Podcast, the podcast where we break down the latest in AI news, tools, and interview experts helping you hustle and do more using AI. If you've been following the podcast for a while, you'll know that over the last six months, I've been working on a stealth AI startup. Of the hundreds of projects I've covered, this is the one that I believe has the greatest potential. So today I'm excited to announce AI Box. AI Box is a no-code AI app building platform paired with the App Store for AI that lets you monetize your AI tools. The platform lets you build apps by linking together AI models like ChatGPT, MidJourney, and Eleven Labs eventually will integrate with software like Gmail, Trello, and Salesforce so you can use AI to automate every function in your organization. To get notified when we launch and be one of the first to build on the platform, you can join the waitlist at AIbox.ai. The link is in the show notes. We are currently raising a seed round of funding. If you're an investor that is focused on disruptive tech, I'd love to tell you more about the platform. You can reach out to me at jaden at AIbox.ai. I'll leave that email in the show notes. Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Schaefer. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of being joined by Joshua Penner, who is the CEO of Inquisio.ai, which is a firm focused on optimizing government efficiency through AI. He has a background in both public service as the mayor of Orting, Washington, and um, the private sector. He has a lot of leadership background there. He uniquely bridges kind of that gap between technology and governance. His strategic expertise has driven scalable success in both of these areas. Welcome to the show today, Joshua. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So the thing I would, super excited, of course, have you on the show today. The thing I would love to kind of kick this off with is I'd love to ask you a little bit about your background um, in a sense that did you always know you were kind of interested in this technology and this AI space? Was this something um, that came to you throughout your career? Or I know you went to school in Harvard. Is this something you saw there? Tell us a little bit about your your background and your journey. Oh, man. Well, I can't say I always was interested, right? Because I, I grew up and went to high school in the 90s and, and started going to school around the dot-com era. And so a a significant portion of my being is feeling like I missed out on the dot-com revolution. Uh, I was okay. too young to know what was happening. You know, my first computer was, I think, in 1999 as I was going into my senior year in high school. And um, so uh, for years, I mean, ever since then, of course, I've, I've been interested in technology. Uh, but uh, as... I started to explore, I'd say, machine learning, right? Because we talk about AI as if AI is is just AI, but in reality, we're talking about a constellation of technologies, machine learning, um, and uh, and just a number of different ways to engage things. And then, as we, I assume, talk about productizing AI, that's going to be kind of a recurrent theme: is it's more than just you know tell the AI to do this and it does it. Um, I, I think my company and and what we're trying to solve it. It came together through, let's say, 15 years of experience with the problem that we're trying to solve. And then uh, at the same time, kind of an alignment of my own ability to understand ways to utilize um, some of this machine learning technology in the public space, uh, a space that traditionally hasn't been very innovative. And um, that's how it all came together was uh, just experiments, understanding the problem deeply, working together with a, a really stellar team of folks who understood the problem um, as deeply as I did, but also some of them probably understood the technology better than me. Very cool. Okay, well, for those that are listening, give us an overview of what Inquisio.ai is, what problem you're solving, um, and yeah, a little bit about kind of your your vision with for it. 
So Inquisio AI, in a nutshell, we're leveraging emerging technology to make government better. And our focus is on what we call small G government. So the federal government would be big G government. States governments would probably be big G government. But local governments are small G. That's cities, counties, school districts, fire districts, sewer districts. The, the folks that you run into every day at the supermarket, or if you have a pothole that you need to fix in front of your house, you call them. Or if you're trying to start a new business, build a build an apartment complex, um, deal with your driver's license issue. All of that is small G government problems. And we are, we believe through experience that fundamentally the reason why so many people have conflict driven experiences with small G government comes down to an information management problem. Um, there's a lot okay. of reasons that uh, small G governments are super risk averse. And so what that means is they introduce additional steps of bureaucracy and and um, intercedent uh, requirements. So that way they avoid risk at all costs, but it makes them very inefficient. And fundamentally that's, a, that's an information flow problem and a perfect problem for uh, say AI, machine learning, and a number of other tools to jump in and improve processes. Okay, very cool. Um, can you talk me through like a specific use case of a way that you know your your company or you know uh, one of these local governments would be able to leverage your platform and you know like give me a specific use case of how this would be helpful? I mean, you you mentioned the pothole. I'm not sure if, if that's relevant. Is this like a faster way to you know get a pothole filled outside your house, or is this kind of something different? It could be. Um, you know, uh, our solutions aim to sit at the nexus of a bunch of different problems in in local government. But I think when we look at what we're trying to build, we think of it this way: that uh, say that you do drive over that pothole and you you have now have to get a new tire, your rims are bent, whatever. There's some sort of damage to your car. Right now, what do you do to find out who, like, what do you do at that point? Do you just say, oh, shucks, I talk to my insurance company or I go pay for it? I mean, that's the, uh, go ahead. What would you do? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, if it's me, I've heard somewhere that somebody is liable. Uh, so, yeah, probably would hit up my insurance company, to be honest, because I don't know how to get in contact with local government, anything, and I would ask them who's supposed to pay for it or what, who I'm supposed to contact. That'd probably be my method. Right. And which is also a horrible method because I hate getting on the phone <laughs> and I hate contacting insurance or customer service, anything. Well, we'll let somebody else solve the insurance problem. But I, you know, fundamentally what you're, what you're going to have to do in most cases is contact your local government. They'll tell you to fill out a tort form. You'll fill it out. You'll hear back from six to eight weeks after you've got your receipt and paid for everything. And you might get it paid for by the local government. You might not, depending on the pothole and the cause. Um, or the government may turn around and, and talk to the maybe the owner of the road, if it's a private road, things like that. But um, this these natural questions, you know, that, that question of what would you do can be quickly answered if there are tools that have access to the policy, to the laws, to the, to the things where you could find the information. And you can ask that simple question. Not only should you be able to ask it at your level of understanding, uh, I, I ran into a I ran into a pothole with my car. What can I do? That should be the extent of your question. You shouldn't have to know what a tort form is. You shouldn't have to know um, any of the legalese language. In fact, you shouldn't even have to speak English very well or at all. You could be monolingual non-English yeah. and you should be able to get your answer in Spanish or whatever language that you speak at home. And so 
that's yeah. that's just one example of reducing the barriers. I think to us, when we look at that, that is that's a very clear use case. Maybe a more challenging one yeah. is that um, every record that a, a government creates um, is what's called a public record. And mm-hmm. you, you as a citizen have a right to those records. However, to get access to those records, quite often what you need to do is under, know exactly what you're looking for. And you need to be very specific in what you're looking for. And even then, it's going to be a challenge to get it in a timely way. And if you look at just a Google search of, um, of records delays, police departments, you will see uh, Seattle Police Department two-year-long record delay in, in getting records oh. requests fulfilled. And you know, you'll see this across the U.S. Um, and it's not just for something like uh, police department records. It could be for, say, you want to um, build a build an apartment complex or do some yeah. do some construction in your city. Um, you know, quite often there's a discovery phase of that sort of thing that takes years to figure out what permits are needed, what uh, what the building requirements are in this city versus that city versus the county. Do I exist in the county? Do I need to get what's called a variance because my property doesn't perfectly align with the policy uh, uh, of the given jurisdiction and which jurisdictions are, do I need to seek variances from? All of this is a very long, complex process that adds, adds quite a bit of cost to the initial idea of developing a property, but also is an information search process that you engage with the jurisdiction and likely the person you're engaging with doesn't have all the information, so they have to do research and uh, we can sit in the middle of that and you can query a natural language against building codes, against building codes of various jurisdictions, and it should be able to sort that out for you and identify what is likely to be your answer. And then you can ask follow-up questions of, well, how do I apply for a variance or what is a variance or what is, you know, how do I apply to change this, right? Which might be more natural language way of saying it. And it should understand, mm-hmm. it should be more capable of that flexibility and uh, eliminate you know ninety percent of the slow back and forth emails with somebody in an, an office somewhere that you're one of a thousand emails, and they'll get to you when they get to yep. you. So, I love that. That's super cool. Um, it definitely sounds like I'm now thinking um, of my uh, my dad in Canada. He had some building permit stuff he was trying to get worked out, and <laughs> yeah, most of I think what he ends up doing is literally going down to the city hall trying to talk to someone there and getting all the answers and uh, definitely a high barrier to entry that is not, you know, for everyone. So super cool. Okay. A question I would love to ask you about all this because I think it's super fascinating. What is like the inception story of Inquisio.ai? Like how did you, how did you get started? I know you're the mayor. And so is this kind of born out of that and seeing some of the inefficiencies in government there? Like, tell me a little bit about the beginning. Uh, It's a little bit of all that. Um, For years, I've had this idea that there's got to be ways to implement implement machine learning in some of our processes. Um, and I say at the city, but I'm not saying I'm using my city as a Petri dish. It's just, I, I experience it with my staff. I see them overworked in information challenges and, um, and I wonder if there's a better way. It just doesn't exist yet. And I would say, well, I don't know, maybe 18 months ago, I started playing around and it sounds like it's just yesterday, 18 months ago, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I, I I really started to focus machine learning on on this idea that, um, so there's, there's this, 
a tweak classification is a is I don't know if you can call tweak classification a traditional machine learning problem, but it's something that you can you can in a university class on machine learning, probably entry level machine learning, um, you would go through like tweak classification of uh, intent, like a positive, negative, neutral intent on tweets or whatever they're called now under Musk. Uh-huh. And um, the idea is you get a statement, 140 characters, 140 words or whatever it is, and you can you chop it up and you say, okay, eliminate all these words that are like it, the, and we call them stop words. And then you would build a corpus, a, a library of words that are probably positive intent, like happy, you know, uh, something like that. And a corpus of words that are probably negative intent, like hate. Um, and uh, you, you then would start to construct different models of, of, uh, corpi, I guess that would be the plural, um, <laughs> against a training set or against a, a known set, like a hand scored set of this is a positive, this is a negative, this is kind of neutral and see if yeah. you can, you could find the models that best fit that without being a hundred percent. Right. Cause if your model's a hundred percent accurate, it's probably only accurate on a very small set. If you generalize it, it'll break down. Um, and, uh, in time, you'll find uh, different models will work better to predict uh, whether a given tweet that it hasn't seen is uh, positive, negative, or neutral with, say, 85% efficacy. Um, so if you take that and back it up a little bit and you say a tweet is just a statement made, um, we should be able to do this to conversations that happen in a structured environment like a council meeting or a, an official conversation in... Um, in in policy so council meetings are generally structured they follow what robert's rules of order people are addressed to speak they speak they make motions they second they vote on them, all that other stuff and utilizing a variation of say tweet classification you should be able to determine with pretty high accuracy whether or not somebody has said whether or not somebody has proposed a motion because uh, there's going to be certain words that typically uh follow or proceed a motion, whether or not somebody second that motion, whether a vote's been taken, what the vote cast was, what the solution was, was there an amendment to the motion, was the meeting then adjourned, right? All these activities you should be able to identify using one model or a couple different models to figure out what the heck's happening in one meeting and then maybe what's happening across a collection of meetings. And if you are able to create a data set of what's happening across a number of meetings, then you can query that data set for things like generating minutes and other things. And so that was the initial concept 18 months ago is let's see if we can, with some, some fidelity, uh, predict what's happening in meetings. So we, um, I would say we, we did a pretty good job. I mean, we did, okay. we did a good enough job to recognize it was possible. It's that, that is not a production quality um, but it was enough to say, okay, there's something here. And then of course, large language models, um, very much hit the cultural zeitgeist right around the same time. And it made us realize that there's a bigger conversation here than just identifying whether or not conversations have an intent. Um, and that got us thinking about how do we apply this technology in a bigger way across a space that we know very deeply. And, um, that's that at that point it became a little bit of experimentation, um, a, a little bit of 
you know, uh, net present value projections and, and identifying what makes sense to chase down, um, what could be sellable in this market. And, um, that's how the company came together. And, you know, we're focused on generally the information thing. We call it the public records problem, but that's the center of so many problems in the public space that, um, that you, your parents, everybody who at some point will come in conflict with their government or be curious about their government. That's where we intend to be. Very cool. I love it. Um, so obviously, you know, you, you mentioned there is definitely a lot of inefficiencies. I think people know this in governments of all levels. I mean, organizations of all levels in general. Um, so I imagine this this is sometimes a bit of a tricky area to work in. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges or obstacles you kind of faced in developing this tech in this specific face and in space? And how are you kind of overcoming those? Well, I think the 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 biggest challenge is is going to continue to be a challenge is that um, by its nature, government is not super innovative in, in, in changing its processes. Uh, as I mentioned before, risk it's, it's very risk averse. You wouldn't settle for your government betting, you know, forty percent of your budget on on red at a casino. So that would be yeah. hyper hyper, you know, risk associated. But at some point, you know, I, you, you, governments think this way. They think I have two options, and either one of them has some amount of risk. How do we find ourselves moving towards the one with the least amount of risk because we have a fiduciary duty to the public's money? And so they do that mm -hmm. by adding in processes and different layers of accountability. So that way, when a government does get sued, because they will, um, every government right. gets sued, uh, then they look back and say, we followed this process that we developed because it was the least risky and it was a fiduciary responsibility. So uh, when we engage potential customers right now, you know, they see this idea of AI and they think, oh my gosh, this is a whole new policy environment that we're not sure how to approach it from a risk mitigation perspective. In fact, I think the state of Maine just passed a moratorium, which is a, a moratorium is a, a short-term ban while they work on policy on utilizing AI for government purposes. Now, that to me is kind of silly because they utilize AI in their spam filter in their email, right? So like right. at what level are we talking about utilizing AI? <laughs> they probably utilized AI on their search engine as they were figuring out how to make this policy. But right. um that's that's one reaction and you're gonna see those edge cases come to being and you can see others who are hyper innovative. But the the mean kind of middle of the road is going to right now be concerned about what's the policy, what are the elements of risk that we need to create policy to surround? And policy is always a slow process. And I think what they what they would be looking at is things like um, what what sort of biases does do these AI models get built from or perhaps reinforce? Uh, and you'll probably see that you know that'll be more of a California question than a than a Texas yeah. question. Um, but, yeah. but you're also going to see something fundamental, like, uh, what do you do about the chain of custody of privileged information? So if, if you have, uh, your social security number on an application for something yeah. at your local government and all that gets fed into, uh, one of our AI tools or somebody else's AI tools, um, who has access to that information then does an intern at 
um, AIstartup.com have access to the raw data or is it obfuscated in some way? Or can it be reproduced if somebody were very clever at query engineering and query hacking? I, these are new terms that just exist in the last year, right? Um, could yeah. somebody very cleverly hack your algorithm or hack your hack your uh, interface through clever querying and get access to information that should be privileged? And so mm. I, I would call that the chain of custody of privileged information, like who owns that? But on the flip side, you know, there's also the question of, well, what can you do that Google can't given access to the same information? And so I think uh, the opportunity that um, communities are going to be presented with real soon is taking all the information and you know putting up a wall around it and saying, if you want access to this information, you have to go through this portal that we've well contracted with Inquisio AI or created ourselves or whatever. Um, and that's not crawlable information. That's information that... Um, the the agency can provide um, and that re retains ownership of all that information. Um, so it does create an element of risk control as well as risk uh, exposure at the same time. But these are all challenges that we have on top of starting a business, demonstrating to to funders that um, that GovTech is a viable space, and you know actually delivering the technology. So there's so much mm -hmm. so much work to do here. Yeah, I believe it. Um, absolutely incredible. This is really cool. I'm actually very excited to uh, have tools like this in the future. I think Inquisio is going to be a big player in this space. Uh, one question I would ask you as we're wrapping up this interview is, what's one piece of advice you feel like you could give to local governments um, that are perhaps looking at implementing AI into what they're working on? Of course, there's the one reaction from Maine that's just, you know, shoot out the moratorium shut it down for now there's other people i've talked to from like the city of austin and texas that are you know being quite proactive in mm -hmm. implementing a lot of ai into what they're doing but yeah what's one piece of advice you feel like you could give people in this space as as a policymaker, um i would say pay attention to the pay attention to the privileged information problem that i just brought up um so be careful what information you're providing to any vendor, um, whether or not you have that vendor on contract or somebody's just going to chat chat GPT and throwing information up there. Um, don't play with data sets that are that have privileged information right now because that problem hasn't been solved. Um, I think that's that's probably a piece of advice I'd offer to any policymaker in any any government space. Um, but I'd also say. You know, understand your problem. Not every problem of government will be solved utilizing AI. In fact, uh, government's probably going to be one of the areas in many ways least affected by this industrial revolution. Um, government is the business of relationships, and those can't directly be replaced by this technology. Not yet. Not in, not, not in a way I can foresee yet, but that could change fast. But um, don't look to AI to solve every problem, but where you can with processes, I think this is going to be revolutionary and it's going to allow you to focus your efforts on places where you would rather spend money as a government. Um, you know, you'd rather spend money on having more engagement with needy populations at that than you would have on having another layer of uh, bureaucracy. So this is going to be a really exciting time in the next couple of years. Uh, if you have to implement a moratorium, make it short because, uh, I think um, I think that you're going to miss out on some things if you do 
that do have too long of a moratorium. And I think one more thing, we were just at the League of California Cities and one of the cities had brought up the idea of, you know, should we create a policy today? And um, I think our perspective on that is just be careful with the policy you create today that you don't do more harm than good because in six months, that policy is probably going to be outdated. Um, and you might get stuck yeah. with a vestigial policy that created more challenges than you than you than you already had in the first place. Kind of, yeah. That's a circle back on my warning about those moratoriums. I, I don't think it's necessary yeah. right now. In fact, it's probably more harmful. Yeah, I uh, definitely agree with you there, Josh. Incredible advice, incredible insights. I'm so excited for the space of um, AI and government tech and everything going on. So thank you so much for coming on the show today and and sharing a little bit about that with us. If people want to get in contact with you, maybe try Inquisio um, or find out a little bit more about what you're working on, what's a good way for them to uh, find Inquisio and get in contact with you? So you can go to our website, Inquisio.ai. Um, you can go to LinkedIn. Now, there are multiple Josh Penners on LinkedIn. Uh, they're all fantastic people. I'm pretty sure of it. But I'm the only one that's the CEO of Inquisio AI. So um, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm definitely an open networker. If you send me a request, I'm going to accept it. Uh, and there's a ton of different ways to get in contact with me there. Perfect. And I will also leave a link in the show notes to Inquisio.ai for the listener. Anyone interested in checking it out can do it there as well. Once again, thanks so much for coming on the show, Josh. To the listener, thanks so much for tuning in to the AI Chat Podcast. Make sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts and have a fantastic rest of your day. If you are looking for an innovative and creative community of people using ChatGPT, you need to join our ChatGPT creators community. I'll drop a link in the description to this podcast. We'd love to see you there where we share tips and tricks of what is working in ChatGPT. It's a lot easier than a podcast as you can see screenshots, you can share and comment on things that are currently working. So if this sounds interesting to you, check out the link in the comment. We'd love to have you in the community. Thanks for joining me on the OpenAI podcast. It would mean the world to me if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in to the AI Hustle podcast. If you could do us a massive favor, we would really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. This helps people find the podcast. It helps people know this is a good place to go. And we would really, really appreciate it as it helps us continue to bring on incredible guests and share incredible content for you to listen to.